This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk technology, computing, uh, possibly even Donald Trump tonight, I'm not really sure, um, all of the important stuff that we want to get through to you over the next hour. Uh, tonight on the show, it's Laura Summers. Laura, how are you? Yeah, really good, thank you. Except maybe the thought of Donald Trump makes me not so good, but aside from that. No, I, like I, I kind of feel like um, people are uh, a little bit past that now. I mm. uh, can't even raise a, a negative conversation about the man. But uh, never mind. Uh, I'm with you too also. Uh, I'm Warren Davies. Uh, tonight out there, uh, there are exoplanets bobbing around everywhere, uh, I have just discovered. Um, we can't quite see them. There's lots of them. Um, and someone's had a great idea to uh, do something about that. Uh, a project in Sydney uh, wants all of us to be able to look for them and to engage people with science uh, in a useful way. So we'll have a chat with Project Panoptes uh, a little bit later in the show. Uh, also, Laura, you got along to Web Directions. Uh, there was, uh, I think, two parts, one in Sydney and one in Melbourne, and you got along to the Melbourne stuff. Yep, um, who did right. you who'd you have a chat to? I actually had a chat to a ton of people, but tonight we're going to be hearing from Rob and from Katie, Rob Howard, who's a functional programmer, and Katie McLaughlin, who is a open source um, developer advocate and also really cool chick. So they were really fun chats, and I think you guys will enjoy them. Before we get to that, though, there is heaps of news to get through, uh, really interesting stuff. Um, for data nerds um census is coming up Mm -hmm. um and there's been a bit of a ruckus around what's going on with census what's happening here laura well as the as the cool kids like to say there has been a hashtag trending on twitter which is census fail Ah. um or that sounds bad yeah i i've heard an alternative pitch which is makes no census but that Ah. hasn't picked up so much yeah i like that one more (laughs) it's pretty funny yeah um but in in a nutshell we we're having two big changes to the census this year and the two changes um, sitting together have raised a lot of concerns, particularly in the InfoSec community, people who are worried about privacy and security of data. And so those two changes are, one, that we're actually capturing data online for the first time, and two, that we're actually also storing things like names and addresses in conjunction with all of our other data that we're sending to the census, like you know our religion, um, all of our habits, income, et cetera, et cetera. And that stuff is going to be stored for an undetermined and possibly you know, infinite amount of time by the government for linking to other data sets and data analysis. And while I would like to caveat that the census is extremely important for policy and it's it's actually really important that we capture this data, um, it's quite concerning that the government has decided to go ahead with these two changes despite a lot of um, concern and potential fear from the InfoSec community that it's not being done in a way that will make that data safe um, and particularly that they're not being clear about how they intend to use it if and when and they will be destroying um, the the names and addresses, um, which is what they tend to do with the with the paper forms. They will keep the names and addresses for as long as it takes to process that data. But then once it's processed, they will destroy it. Um, and also, like the the question that I've seen raised around this issue of security, which I think is a really like good and most pointed question, is why are we not just hashing out the names? So mm. you can you can create an anonymized hash, yeah. which is allowing a unique identifier for each person, while not also keeping their actual name and address against that data. Well, that so, information isn't actually that important. It's everything else that comes after it that's useful. Exactly, and it shouldn't. We, we shouldn't need to keep that data. Um, mm. You know, ongoing 
government services in perpetuity. Um, and as there's there's been many things floating around, like articles, you can um, look at the Twitter census fail hashtag. But um, I think the the nicest. Um, uh, question I've heard around this is if Ashley Martin, whose job it is to keep secrets, was unable to keep secrets, why would we trust the government to do it? Particularly when there's this nice big honeypot of data that's going to suddenly arrive come August 9th with everyone filling out the forms online. What's well, effectively one of the um, uh, motivators for, for hackers, obviously, is mm. the more secure you try and make it and the more you tell us that um, no one's going to be able to break into it, we're just going to drop what we're doing over there and, and focus on this because that sounds really fun. And there's status Precisely. and all of the stuff around that. Precisely. Um, one of the other things around that was the um, uh, some of the security around um, the SHA-1 hashing algorithm um, has been um, pretty much debunked. Uh, a lot of places are facing that out um, in, in the next uh, year or two. Um, I think even some of the uh, Australian departments, uh, Australian Signals Directorate um, actually stopped using it in 2011, mm. um, uh, five years ago. So... Yeah. yeah, worrying that we're using outdated technology and um, security systems for this. And there, to be fair, the ABS did respond to this concern and they said that they are using um, SHA-2 as opposed to SHA-1 um, mm. for the majority of the form inputs, but they will still accept inputs submitted over the less secure SHA-1 um, encryption, which isn't ideal. And again, like we should be, I mean, if you think about how any major um, tech company rolls out new, new um, feature sets, they don't go, oh, hey, everybody, you get it all at once. They go, ooh, we'll try it with five percent of our users and once we've made sure that we got that right then we push on to 15 and then to 20 so i it's concerning that they are sort of determined to steamroll onwards without actually testing out um either these encryptions or like the way that they're storing the data once they've got it um with small amounts um or like potentially like a chunk of the population first Mm. Moving from a, a potentially dubious idea to something a lot more fun and interesting, there is a $99 crowdfunded program out there um, for a laptop uh, created from your smartphone, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, the Superbook is a uh, cheapskate's way. I saw this the other week um, on, on Facebook and I was like, it's the tightwads kind of you know laptop. And all, all the tightwads were on there talking about you know how they could save a dollar or two basically based on this. Um, so it, it is for Android only. It turns your uh, smartphone, Android smartphone, into a complete laptop. So the premise is smartphones are amazing. Androids can do pretty much most things that a laptop could do. We're only hindered by the size and, and sort of functionality of it. Mm. So um, what you actually get for your 99 bucks uh, at its core, it's a smart laptop shell that provides a large screen, keyboard, multi-touch trackpad, and eight hours of battery life. Uh, and phone charging capabilities, which I would buy just for. I hate those, you know, little shells that you have to to keep your phone charged. Oh yeah. But if I if I've got like a a, a, a shell of a, a laptop, yeah, I don't look like. I'm it's essentially of, a really sexy case for a big ass battery. Yeah, should sounds, we be clear? Like it's it's yeah. it's basically like here's a really nice big battery. Here's a really lovely keyboard that you can use in a screen that en- enhances the usability of your phone. Um, so and it who doesn't is, want that. Well, seriously, um, I've seen a battery pack for phones that like looks like a little hunchback or a little camel on top of a phone, and it like, totally breaks the lines, right? So, you know, anything that's lovely industrial design will make me happy. Uh, another thing that caught our eye uh, this week, um, Peter Thiel has had a lot to say about a lot of things. Um, um, Hasn't sort he of just? P- post LinkedIn. Um, well, what's, what's been kind of wrinkling brows? 
um, at the moment. Well, Peter Thiel, um, and just a little background on him if you don't know, he's kind of um, an uber investor slash big wig in Silicon Valley. He's ex-PayPal, ex-LinkedIn, mm. um, Facebook board member, and mm. also gay and also a bit of a weirdo, to be clear. Like, I think everybody I've seen talking about him online has said, yeah, this guy's a little bit weird. So mm. I don't think I would be going out on a limb to, to pop that also in his um, intro. And he, but you go to a barbecue at his place when you just have a look around. Well, out of like weirdo curiosity for sure. Yeah. And like if I was introduced to anybody who was on the Facebook board of directors barbecue, I'd be going just to be like, hey, here's my CV, by the way, dudes. Here I am. This guy kind of sounds like the Stanley Kubrick of, of you know, um, Los Angeles right of, now. Of like Silicon Valley. Yeah. That's actually quite an idea. I mean, oh. Well, yeah. Anyway, Anyway, um, but yes, he he did actually get up at the GOP National Convention and um, pledge his support for Trump and try and encourage everybody else to support Trump. And um, it's a bit of a weird, weird marrying of camps, right? Because he's on the libertarian little government or less government restrictions, fewer taxes, basically just like hands off and let us do our thing kind of side of the world. And um, he thinks that Trump as a businessman is the right man for the job, although I think that's been pretty thoroughly debunked that he's actually a successful businessman. So that's a bit of a weird, a weird like oversight on my view. And he's also gone ahead and said things like there's been no optimistic economic times in the U.S. since the 20s and then gone on to say, oh, by the way, that was also good that the women didn't have the vote then. So, you know, he's he's been a little bit out there with his claims. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's simply that he doesn't have any um, company at the moment that's that's maybe reining him in. <laughs> Um, I also, when I was researching him, I found a random little article saying he's into life extension and he's apparently spending $40,000 a quarter on getting blood from an 18 year old based on some Stanford research on life extension. So you'd work at McDonald's really, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want to sell your blood out the back to Peter Thiel coming past in his. It's kind of a weird image, right? Like the Silicon Valley guru who's also like kind of got some weird vampirizing yeah. vampirism going on so yeah. i don't know I, but yeah he's 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 definitely i'd say like most of silicon valley would say he doesn't speak for them i don't think that he's necessarily representative of like all the the head honchos in the tech community um but he certainly good, makes for a good press um and he's he's definitely raising eyebrows at the moment interesting Hey, one of the cool things that we always try and find a way to talk about uh, on Bite Into It is space. And whenever there's interesting technology in space, we're totally up for it. Uh, one of the things that we did come across is a project called Project Panoptus. I hope I'm getting that right. Uh, we will check in a minute. Uh, joined on the line now by Wilfred G from Sydney. Wilfred, how are you tonight? I'm doing well, thank you. Um, yes, and you're right. It's called Project Panoptes. Uh pretty great name did you come up with that straight away and did you find a project to go with the name or was it just suitable for what you're trying to do you know i think it was the the project is originally the brainchild of olivier guion who is an astronomer out at subaru telescope in hawaii um and i think it was kind of a backronym in terms of he found the name and then created an acronym that goes around it um panoptes is actually the greek god that means all seeing so it's kind of the idea is for all seeing and what we're trying to do is watch all of the sky at any given time. We're kind of drooling here in the studio right now at that name. You've got a better accent than me, so can you have a go at the full the full name for the project? Yeah, so it's called Panoptes, and that's P-A-N-O-P-T-E-S, um, and we're at projectpanoptes.org. Um, Which stands and- for... 
It stands for, you know, it, that's, that's one of the things that's I'll, I'll very it. hard to do. <laughs> I'll do it. Panoptic <laughs> Astronomical Networked Observatories for a Public Transiting Exoplanet Survey. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, yeah, and the idea with it is that really, um, you know, most of the sky at any given time is not observed. You know, we have some really big, powerful telescopes in the world, and we have some amateur telescopes in the world, and at any given time, a bunch of photons are coming at us from space, and, you know, astronomers like to view those photons as information. Um, but most of those photons just are not captured, and if they're not captured when they hit the Earth, they're sort of lost for all time. Um, so one of the goals for the project was to try and basically capture as much of that information as we can. And sort of the best way to do that is to have a lot of small telescopes all over the world. Um, that way, if there's bad weather in Hawaii, where some of the major telescopes are, you know, you don't lose a whole night of observations. Um, and it turns out that's sort of the best way to get these small telescopes all over the world or small observatories all over the world is to actually involve citizens and to involve high school kids and involve college kids and other interested amateurs. So sort of to that end, what we've done is created a little kit and a prototype unit that can easily be replicated by those interested amateurs and high school students. And, and what we want to do is really sort of enable groups all over the planet to start building these kits. And then we network all the information together, stack all the images, and sort of through that, what we're trying to do is find transiting exoplanets. Um, that's our scientific goal, sort of the end product for it. So, Wilfred, can you explain for those people who don't know what transiting exoplanets actually are? Yes, and I was just about to do that. So, and, and you know, an exoplanet is any planet that's outside of our solar system. Um, about 20 years ago, these, you know, were mostly theoretical. They sort of, you know, we didn't have any observations of them and we didn't know about them. Um, these days, they're kind of a hot topic. Um, and a lot of that's through the Kepler mission, which went up a couple of years back. And the idea with the Kepler mission was it, it picked one chunk of sky, a pretty small chunk of sky, and it just stared at that chunk of sky um, continuously. And, you know, if you stare at us, here on, here on Earth when we stare at stars, they kind of twinkle, but that's mostly because of the atmosphere. But if you stare at one star, it'll stay the exact same brightness over time. But kind of like we have, like you can imagine eclipse on a really big scale or the transit of Venus back in 2012, if a planet passes, an exoplanet passes between that star and us, then the light that we see from that star will actually dim just a little tiny bit. So what Kepler did was stare at this one chunk of sky and stared at all these stars up there and just looked for little tiny dimmings in how much brightness, like a little tiny reduction in how bright it gets. Um, and by sort of doing that, you know, if it happens once, you say, uh, maybe something weird happened. If it happens exactly six months later, and then exactly six months later, and you see the same dip every six months, you can start to say, oh, there's a planet out there that's on some kind of orbit around it that we see every six months. Mm -hmm. Um, when I, I saw, I actually met Wilfred when I was over in Austin for a conference called OzCon, and um, I saw his talk, and I, I remember you mentioned then the actual dip in the photons being um, really minuscule. Can you refresh my memory? Like, how much does it actually change? Yeah, so, so in the beginning, the first planets were... Um what we call Jupiter-sized planets, you know, these, these large gas planets about as large as Jupiter. Um, 
And a big Jupiter planet uh, transiting in front of its host star will reduce the light by about 1%, um, which is not a lot. You know, so you imagine all these photons are coming at us and then, uh, you know, a 1% decrease in those number of photons. And that's what we're looking for. And that's, and that's a large planet, and that's a substantial dip. Um, you know, of course, these days the goal is to drive that down to what we call Neptune-sized planets and then eventually get to Earth-sized planets, which are significantly less than 1% of the total light. So, so it does require, you know, a sensitivity, and you can imagine Kepler up in space um, had that sensitivity and, and was a very powerful instrument. Um, what's interesting about our project is, you know, the whole cost of a little unit that we want a school to build is under about six, seven thousand Australian dollars. We price it at, at five thousand U.S. dollars. Um, you know, which is what we feel a school can fundraise on their own or get donations, something like that. And and it actually just uses. Canon Rebel cameras. It uses anything you could buy at a local electronics store and a hardware store. Um, we don't use anything specialized, no fancy equipment, anything like that. And and part of that is possible because Olivier Guillon, who came up with the project idea, um, he figured out an algorithm and a way that we can sort of overcome the limitations of those digital cameras and recover that transit information from those digital cameras, which sort of hasn't been possible previously. I'm pretty excited by the um, by the kit as well, just having a look at it here. Uh, you've presumably seen Wally, the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you like to describe for people back home what these units kind of look like? Yeah, and, and you know, you're right. We, we aim for for cute and approachable in that sense. Um, you know, so so it's the unit itself is a standard commercial mount, which is just something that's, you know, a little over a meter tall. And then on top of that, we strap a little box, and it has two of these Canon Rebel cameras in there, which look sort of like two eyeballs up on the head unit. Um, and this mount is just a pretty standard mount, and it just basically, once it turns dark, it's automated. It'll turn on by itself. It'll find a target, and it'll just watch an individual target for, or an individual spot in the sky, sort of for as long as it can. Um, kind of how Kepler watched that one tiny spot. Um, and, you know, most of the exoplanets we know of, which are about 5,000 these days, are from that one tiny chunk of sky. And with this little robot with its two little eyeballs and with a bunch of these robots all over the world, you know, we hope to be able to watch all of the night sky all at one time. So if you're kind of interested in, in doing something like this, um, how, how do you get involved? Aside from sort of setting up to, to raise the money, do you need to have sort of uh, technical skills? I notice you've put sort of some of the important code in, in GitHub and what, what level of um, tech ability do you need to, to participate? You know, we're, we're kind of aiming at... Yeah, we aim at uh, secondary schools and above, high school students and above, and we... You know, one of our goals, we say we're 50% science and 50% education and outreach. So I'd say that, you know, the most important thing is to have an interest in doing it. And what we want to do is is have this be a way to learn some of those skills. And to that end, there's, you know, I've been working a lot on some of the software. We have other people working on some of the hardware and doing some soldering with some Arduinos. And we have Raspberry Pis and those kind of things mixed into the, into the kit. Um 
So, you know, I would say it doesn't require any specific technical skills as long as one is willing to learn those. And we sort of imagine, you know, with if you were really competent, you could buy the kit and you could probably put it together in a couple of days. What we would actually prefer to see is a school or a classroom spend, you know, a couple of months building this and taking the time and, and using it as a learning tool while they're building it. So, so you know, the end... The end goal is not necessarily to have as many units, although we do want as many units. The end goal is to enable as many people to learn and to get involved with science and to to genuinely contribute to science. It's a pretty basic kit as well to actually build it. I'm just looking at the stuff here. So it's you know <laughs> clamps, drill, hacksaw, rags. Good. Oh yeah, can't forget the rags. <laughs> can't forget the rags. <laughs> Don't forget the rags. Yeah, you got to keep it clean. Yeah, and that's you know that's kind of the idea. We we. Everything, like I said, you know, we want to put it together as a kit that people can easily order it. But, you know, really you can take our parts list, which is right down on the website, and you could head down to the local yeah, – yeah, I'm, I'm very new to Australia, so I don't know what the local hardware or electronics store is called. But, you know, you could head down there and, and buy these parts yourself and, and sort of assemble it yourself in your backyard or in your garage if you wanted to. And, and that's the idea is, is – you know, we don't think you need to have a PhD and $10 million in order to contribute to science. Mm. Um, I've, I've seen some photos of the kits set up in some pretty harsh conditions. I know you guys had to do a lot of research to make sure that the kits could deal with different weather and um, precipitation, that sort of thing. Like, um, how did you guys end up landing on the kit that you've got? And did you did you find that, like, certain cameras or certain um, uh, casings were better than others? Yeah, and, the you know, part of the reason it's so cost-effective is we actually don't aim to protect it that much. Um, you know, a lot of observatories or a lot of astronomy folks have have their telescopes, and as soon as it's, it's bad weather, they close their dome or they rush their telescope inside. Um, for ours, basically what we do is we have the two little eyeballs on the unit, and we look down toward the ground, and we try and wait out the storm. Um, and we've actually found that to be pretty effective in terms of getting, you know, in terms of getting data and in terms of protecting the unit. Really, really, we're trying to cover the eyeballs, essentially. It's, it's kind of like since we don't have eyelids, we just look down at the ground and let the rain wash off of our head. Um, but the other nice part is in the worst case scenario, if you ruin, let's say, two cameras, you know, that's about a fifth of the total cost and you could replace those cameras without replacing everything else. We do, you know, weatherproof it. We try and protect it sort of as much as possible, but but really we just kind of avoid the bad weather by looking down at the ground is, is sort of the most cost-effective way to do things. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and one other thing that's interesting about the challenge of this project is not just that you can allow people to capture data all around the world, but that once they've got that data, you guys have to work out what the weather conditions are, like what the constraints were at the location they were filming so that you know um, how meaningful the photons that they're capturing are. And like, how is that the sort of work you've been doing with the software? Like, are you looking at how to cleanse and sort of amalgamate that data? 
Yeah, and so we've been really fortunate. So I'm over at Macquarie University in Sydney, and that's what, so the last couple of years I've been writing a lot of the control software. Um, you know, we're writing all in Python because we felt that was approachable. We want people to be able to use it as a learning tool and use an easy language. Um, so I've been writing a lot of the control software, and then I'm kind of moving into a lot of that analysis and the image analysis. And we've been real fortunate in having a partnership with Google. Google, um, a developer advocate at Google Cloud, found out about our project, and she became really interested in the project as well and has donated us you know, some significant storage space and network space and computing space. So that's, we've been really fortunate in that respect, and what we're doing is networking all of the units together, move all of that data out and, you know, into the Google Cloud, and astronomers do what's called stacking images. We will, we'll take an image of a certain area from all of the units and add them on top of each other. Um, it's a little more complicated than that in terms of the algorithm and the analysis and how it works, but, but that's sort of the basic idea is to stack all the images from a whole variety of units and get really reliable data about these light curves, as we're called, as they're called. Um, when a when a planet, when an exoplanet transits in front of its host star, when it passes in front of its host star, the dip in light creates a curve that astronomers refer to as a light curve. We will be out there tonight with our naked eyes looking for light curves. Uh, Wilfred, <laughs> it sounds amazing. Um, what should people do if they if they want to get involved with the project? You know, I would say go on to our website um, or email us. And the website is, uh, again, it's Project Panoptes. So it's project and then P-A-N-O-P-T-E-S dot org. Um, and it's just info at Project Panoptes. And we also have a Twitter handle, you know, at Project Panoptes. Um, so, you know, there's a sort of a variety of ways to contact us. But if you if you go to the website or just email info at Project Panoptes, that sort of goes to our whole core team, and we can we can get people involved. And and you know, just real quick, I wanted to say. So I just arrived here in Australia. I'm going to be building one here at Macquarie in the next few months, and then I really want to help start building them sort of all over the country is is really the goal. Like I'd, I'd really like to see that done. So. Can I make a request, Wilfred? I, I, here in Melbourne, it'd be really important to see one of these with a ceramic koala on the side with a male <laughs> slot. Um, so, you know, you've got to be useful as often as you can. So if this can receive mail and look for exoplanets at the same time in a stylish <laughs> Australian way, I reckon that'd be awesome. That w- I, will, I will take that into note and, and run it by the team. Designers won't like it, but you know, <laughs> we'll go with it. Exactly. Wilfred, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, Web Directions Code uh, 2016 is on at the moment. Uh, our intrepid investigative journalist has been down there, Laura Summers. You've been meeting, greeting, Web Directions coding. What has been going on? Um, well, lots of people having lots of strong opinions about the front end and ah. DevOps and system architectures and how we deal with the server and JavaScript and all the things. But particularly, I've, I've had a chance to chat to some of the amazing speakers. Um, and we're going to share a couple of those chats with you tonight. The first one being Katie McLaughlin, who is a open source developer and working on some really, really cool projects, which you're about to hear about. I'm here chatting to Katie McLaughlin. She's an open source developer and has given an amazing chat on emoji and Unicode adoption across devices and web browsers and generally why we should all get the poop emoji straight away. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, hi, Katie. Thank you so much for chatting to us. Hi. It's really good to be able to do stuff and talk. Totally agreed. Um, so I've got some silly questions for you. Um, first one being, in the land of tech, what is the thing that wakes you up in the middle of the night? Hopefully nothing. So I'm an operations engineer and something's really broken if I get woken up in the morning. <laughs> but if you're talking about the cool fancy stuff I'm really excited about, is that what you would like to know? Because I have props. I would love to see props. Show me props. So what we have here is a coin. It's about two inches around, and it's very shiny. And on one side, it says, confirmed yak shaver. And on the other side, it says, beware the Ides of Python. This is a challenge coin. You get a challenge coin if you contribute to this project that I'm totally going to name drop here called Beware. This is the thing that I'm really excited about right now. So have you ever wanted to write an application for Apple or Android and not have to use Java or whatever language it forces you into and... Do you want to write your thing once and put it everywhere? Of course, that's totally the dream, write once, publish everywhere. Exactly. Now, you do have things now like React Native and stuff. However, Beware is solving the problem in Python. So what it is is a whole series of different projects that is working towards getting an application that you write in Python using various libraries that we've created and then being able to publish it anywhere you want. Um, are you familiar with Django Girls at all, the one-day workshop where you get ladies or other minorities who haven't done any web dev before and within a day they publish their own blog? I'm not familiar with that event, but that sounds amazing. So when you say publish your own blog using Django, using Python, using anything? Yep, so uh, the day event is... You start off with, I don't know how to do anything to, I've just written a blog in Django. Our end goal is we can run one of these workshops and go from, I don't know how to do a thing, to writing a mobile web app where you can, say, have a real-time chat application that you can share with your friends or something where you can write your blog post on your phone and publish it to your blog in a day. We want to make it that accessible for people to be able to work and develop in mobile and in the web and everything else. And it just happens to be in Python, even though I'm sitting here at Web Directions and Python may not be a language that many people here use. But that's absolutely fine. I was at a hackathon yesterday and I totally published some stuff out of Python for the first time. And we spun it up in like less than 20 minutes. So I can attest that it's super easy to get started. Yeah, and that's we're hoping to take that uh, momentum that's happening at the moment and turn it into this thing. But the reason I bring out the shiny coin is that if you contribute to the project, if you do any little bit of code or any non-code contribution either, if you write a blog post, if you try the tutorial and you explain how it works to someone else, you get a shiny coin. And in two weeks from now in Melbourne, just up the road, uh, from the 12th to the 16th, there is DjangoCon Australia, where there is going to be a keynote about this project, and there's also going to be sprints. And if you have a ticket to this conference, or you turn up to the sprints and help you get a shiny coin. Ooh. It's really shiny. You can't see it, but it's really shiny. Chink, chink, chink. I've been using a app called Ionic, which runs on Cordova, which does the HTML5 JavaScript publishing out to different natively wrapped apps. So tell me, how does this project compare to a tool like that? There are ways to wrap around different platforms, especially JavaScript across all the different devices since we have JavaScript on the server now. That's not what we're aiming for. We're aiming for native on the system. Your users should not be able to know or be able to tell that you're running Python. 
Mm. It needs to be seamless. It needs to look like not a web page in an app. Mm. It's a native app. Mm. So the way you do that is you have to get from Python to Java for Android and from Python to Objective-C for iOS. Mm. And there are many nerdy ways that you can get through that, but this is all being run by... I'm a core developer. This isn't my idea. But this is all run by the uh, founding apiarist, because it's bees, uh, Dr. Russell Keith McGee, and he's worked out how to take Python and turn it into Java Mm -hmm. and take Python and turn it into Mm Objective-C. So you write the thing once, it goes to the native languages, the native APIs, Mm -hmm. and so you can't tell that it's not written in these native things. So there's no web canvases, there's no fake web pages, it's Mm. not a web app manifest, it's native code running on the native device Mm. that you don't need to rootkit for, you don't need to do anything, you should be able to just install it from the app store as you would any normal app and your users can't tell that it was written in Python. Can you plug into all of the native device um, APIs, all the cool stuff like accelerometer and humidity controls? Anything that's actually allowed. I know that there are some limitations in Apple where it won't let you use some of its system APIs, mm-hmm. but if any natively written third-party application can do it, mm-hmm. beware stuff can do it. That's super cool. Let me keep asking you entertaining questions since that's the theme of the night. Any other tools that you can't live without? I miss Google Reader. I tried to subscribe to the Twitter feeds that were kind of the replacement for RSS, but I just miss getting that thing where it's like, oh, it's four o'clock on a Friday. Here's a new XKCD comic because I I don't even think I've read today's XKCD. That's how far behind I am because I don't have an RSS reader anymore that I trust. Sad face. Sad face indeed. Do you have any digital junk food or like guilty pleasures that you maybe shouldn't indulge in but do? I will say that my answer is uh, clientsfromhell.net. It's annoying, frustrating stories about clients wanting things for free and the uh, developers and the designers' uh, complaints about them. And reading that reminds me why I'm not a designer because I don't think I could deal with that sort of, oh, I want spec work for free. Um, That and uh, notalwaysright.com and the other associated ones with that really remind me why I I prefer not to deal with clients. (laughs) Clients can't live with them, can't run projects without them. Yes, that's right. Well, thank you so much for chatting to me, Katie. It is 7.45. You're on Triple R, listening to Bite Into It this week with Laura and Warren. Laura, that was Katie. She sounded like she was doing some uh, pretty fun stuff. Yeah, she's she's really into um, supporting women in tech and as well as working on these Python projects that are open source and free to the public and like really excited about getting other contributors coming in and working on these projects. Um, and it's got some really great commercial applications, this, this Python getting published out to native... Um, languages like Objective-C for iOS and Java for Android. So yeah, very, very cool um, projects. And she's a really, really fun lady to hang out with. So we had a good chat. Uh, and you met her before or that was the first time at the conference? No, first time. She just yeah. she just was cool. And she talked about poop emoji. I mean, like how much can you not love a person when you talk about poop emoji? 
um, poo, bringing people together <laughs> exactly uh, in Melbourne this week. Um, you, you caught up with another guy as well. Um, yeah, so there was this guy, Rob Howard, who's um, he's over from Sydney. He's working on functional programming and um, he's actually coming back for a, another event in, um, I think, about a month called Compose, which we'll chat about later. But um, he, he had lots to say about um, also functional programming and ways that that might become part of like the commercial reality of tech. I'm here chatting to Rob Howard. He is a developer at Ambiata. Thank you for chatting to me, Rob. Hello. Had very, very entertaining arm waving in your talk. I enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> That's basically what I do on stage. I gesticulate and I speak very quickly and I have examples that I hope are clear, but we'll see what happens. I would love to know what tech things either keep you up at night or wake you up in the middle of the night. Oh, geez. Um, so uh, I, went to, I, I went to a uni or whatever, but... Um, it was all sort of very focused on sort of do it like a vocational kind of stuff. And that's all well and good. But I've sort of been chasing after this theoretical education I never really had. Mm. Uh, I've been always after um, trying to, I feel like there's chunks, missing gaps in my knowledge. And so I've been, I've been digging into sort of more academic things and more Mm. academic languages um, and seeing what I can both do with them, what I can learn. And basically um, I work with a group of 20 people. They're all terrifyingly smart. I, every time I get into work, I feel professionally intimidated, but it's exactly where I want to be because I'm learning a lot. So I'm basically playing, jumping between playing catch up with all my colleagues and all the really interesting things they're working on and satisfying my own curiosity in my own education. Mm. Well, that sounds kind of exhilarating. I understand. I understand that feeling of like constantly feeling behind the eight ball, but I think that's kind of everybody. I don't know that's necessarily unique to you, Um, but hey, congratulations for going out and learning all the things. Um, And what things are waking you up in the morning and getting you excited to go and hack? Oh, geez. Um, Just different where, well, okay, a couple of different things. One is I like mucking around with like little games and stuff like that. That's always that's always fun. And whenever you work on a game, how no matter how simple it seems to touch on a whole bunch of different little things. Mm-hmm. And so you work on one of those things and you just learn a bunch while doing it. Other things are trying to come up with better ways of writing software such that they don't, it doesn't fall to pieces. Software, as if you've ever used a whole bunch of websites that just happen to not work correctly, my goal is to write stuff that doesn't fall over. And so it's coming up with better ways of writing this software such that it doesn't fall over but does all the stuff we want to do, which on the surface doesn't sound that exciting, but there's a lot of depths to be plumbed there, and that's kind of what I've been interested in. And to be fair, like if anyone's been using websites on their mobile phones in the last 10 years, they've probably got very low expectations for what they're going to get to do and are used to seeing incredibly janky stuff (laughs) show up. So like to be optimistic about the issue, there's lots of room for improvement, right? Yeah, there's definitely... There's there's so much room. Like we're still we're still basically going back to stuff that people came up with in fifties, sixties, eighties, or whatever, and and still trying to make use of that stuff in our, in our current applications. We're still we're still plumbing depths of, of stuff that academics have come up with, like you know, decades ago, mm-hmm. and and so that we can definitely learn from them and all the new stuff that's where, that's still active research in order to try and build like software that works better. On that topic of all of these frameworks and languages that we're building on that do come from like 20, 30, 40 years ago, do you see space for completely new languages? Yeah, I'd say so. I, my, my day job is working actually with a language that's uh, only a couple of, maybe three years old. It's a language called PureScript and it's something that turns into JavaScript and that's, that's fine. It means we can interoperate, we can you know work with the existing JavaScript, but it's its own language and it's new 
aside from that, there's all sorts of active language research outside of that where people are trying new sorts of things all, all the time. There's uh, the other language I use in my day job called Haskell is from 1980 something. And uh, there's still new stuff being added to that all the time. And there's still new languages that are building out from that or there are there is just entire fields that we're still exploring. It's so there's there's definitely room to move. Functional programming represent <laughs> so good. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. I think it's a, it's an interesting field because it's very academic still. But I can see there's going to be lots of applications for it. Oh, you want to answer that? Oh, just briefly. Uh, to be clear, I came from my first language was actually basic, but my first or real I got paid to write this language was PHP, and I did that for seven years, mm-hmm. and then I did Ruby for four years. So this isn't like crazy academic. Uh, you know, pie in the sky kind of stuff. Like this is real practical things. It's just they tend to get a little, unfortunately, a little bit sort of characterizes all oh, those ivory tower eggheads or whatever. So it's mm-hmm. nice to see like some of this stuff is actually making it to the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Like Redux is something that has is brought some so like you know people saying the words pure function and knowing what it means or just more functional style stuff. Starting up more mainstream languages or type system stuff like Flow and TypeScript. It's really encouraging to see this stuff gradually make it into the mainstream. So, you know, you know let's keep, keep that going. Yeah, awesome. Um, and one last silly question. What is your current digital junk food and or guilty pleasure? Uh, probably Twitter. <laughs> Everyone answers that, but I don't see why it's guilty. Like, that's actually a good thing, right? You know, we're sharing knowledge. Uh, there's yeah, it, it's re- a really useful tool, and I basically do most of my networking on it. Isn't just in the sense of having a chat to people and finding new stuff and things. But after a certain point, you know, it's just okay. Now I'm just scrolling. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. 